we've got Andy Stanley channeling Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and uh, also St. Peter and then telling us that there was once upon a time when God loves Jews more than he loved anybody else. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. What do, or let's be more specific. What does the New Testament teach? Or even better, what does Jesus teach? What does Jesus teach? Andy, are you saying there that the two covenants that the Bible is, is conflicts? Yes. All right, so we're going to get into some genuinely bizarre and outrageous things that Andy Stanley is saying in, saying in this uh, this sermon series from Easter called Aftermath, and it's just yeah, it's, it just gets really weird. This whole uh, these couple of sermons, we're, we're just look at pieces of them because I think that's really all we're going to have time for because there, there's a lot there, but it's really one major thing where he's talking about how. Uh, we don't base our faith off of the Bible. We base it on the resurrection. That's one of his major themes. He's also talking about how everybody is afraid of the Old Testament. They can't explain the Old Testament. There's all these attacks in the Old Testament, so just never mind the Old Testament. That's that's really what he's going to try to get to as well. And so it's, it's strange, and we'll get to all that. But before we do, I want to remind you of the Kipos Hope Academy Well Project in Kenya, Please donate to that. Also, last week we got the shipment of art in from uh, from Fred Ancho in uh, in Kenya as well. So we've got a couple of things going on right now. We're we're selling the art. Uh, hopefully this weekend we'll we'll sit down. As t- I one thing I lack time for is web design, but but this is something I have to do. So so I've got to get on there. I'll put the art up. Uh, some of you already know about it. My wife's doing a great job already of selling it. Um, it's a beautiful stuff, and I can't wait to show it to you. Get it up on the website, um, and all that money uh, goes to. We're, we're retaining uh, just a little bit of it, ten percent, uh, to ship more over once we sell all the art they sent. But they were able to send two hundred pieces. Uh, what 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 happened was we started raising money for them for a well project, and then Fred and I got to talking, and then I had Monica kind of coming into the picture, and we said, "Hey, we're gonna." Let's let's make this move. We'll, we'll import Fred's art and sell it here. That way, we can get them an income stream going, and they can start saving for their own well. And then we can continue to gather donations uh, and, and and dig Monica's well uh, at the Kibos Hope Academy, which we which we've been talking about. And so, uh, we took two hundred fifty dollars of the money we'd raised so far, sent it to Fred. He packed up a box of almost two hundred uh, pieces of art. Well, over two hundred pieces of art. It was amazing how much you can ship at once. Uh, Especially considering what it costs to ship one thing, the cup. If you guys see, have seen my incomparable layman's terms mug, you got to go check that out uh, on our website, layman'stermsradio.org. But if you've seen that thing, that thing costs fifty bucks alone to ship. So I was really, really happy and surprised that we were able to get that much art. And the art is remarkably beautiful. <clears throat> it's hand carved soapstone. I don't know how they do it all. Uh, obviously, they have dyes and paints that they they use with it. Uh, I've seen them carve the thing. I don't see how they—they. They, I don't know if they fire it or what, but it's—it's it's just amazing. It's amazing stuff, and it's—it's it's very beautiful. And and we can sell it at very reasonable prices. Uh, now that, that now that we have this much here, whereas before, you know, a piece that that like a couple of pieces we sold for like twenty five dollars would have cost you know one hundred and twenty five dollars maybe 
to to buy and have shipped from Kenya. So it's it, and and all that money, like I say, except for the the ten percent we're holding back for shipping, is all going back to Fred and Kenyan Christian Arts, and he's got a school too, and they're trying to drill a well for the community as well. Uh, you know, so so that's great. We're really excited to be a part of that, and we're really looking forward to to selling this art. My my wife loves it. She just opened the thing right up and started selling the stuff. She's great. <laughs> so thank you, Jen. Ah, but also, but also, don't forget we we do need your donations, your one time donation of fifty dollars for the Kibos Hope Academy Well Project. Again, fifty dollars from each of you one time will get this done. And uh, like you heard Monica talk about a few weeks ago on the podcast. Again, if you miss that, it's uh, uh, two uh, two weeks from today's podcast. Two weeks ago, um, where Monica is on talking about that with me for an extended period of time. Uh, She's t- she just lays it right out there, you know, really the, the needs. I mean, because essentially the school survives off the, quote, city water, and they've got like one spigot where they go and fill up buckets, and that's where they get water for, uh, from for the day. Um, and But that, that only is for three days a week. And the rest of the time, the children have to take their time and energy away from their education, which is going to break them out of poverty if they get this education. They've got to take time away from that to go to the, the streams, and the rivers and wherever else the water sources are to gather water for the days just so they can have water so they can learn it's it's just you can't even get your mind around that and we can solve that problem if you just donate 50 bucks that's it um i'm not a great salesman i've never been great at selling things um but i'm passionate about this and i'm determined that that we're going to get this well drilled uh and and again we could have it done this week we have done this week if everybody who downloads this podcast, just stops, just stop the podcast right here, go to laymanstermsradio.org, click on our Kenya Well Project, and donate. There's three ways to donate there. It's very self-explanatory. Donate your money, people. Let's let's make this thing happen. Um, because, yeah, I just breaking these kids out of, out of poverty by helping them with their education, we just can't measure how much good that's going to do in that community and in, and in the country of Kenya. So please donate your $50. All right. So Andy Stanley is going to get jiggy with it here. He's going to get crazy on this one. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, It's funny in a sense, but to be fair to Stanley, I think really what is hindering him in a lot of ways, a a couple of things. I'm not not sure how nefarious he is in all of this. I think he really does want to reach out with the gospel to people. He wants to lower all the barriers. I mean, this is this is what we talked about. We always want to lower the barriers. We want to make it as easy as possible for people to know and accept the gospel. That's that's the idea. And you want to you want to clear out as many barriers as you, as you possibly can. And so um you know, that's that's what we thought church was supposed to be about. We're supposed to provide a forum where there's very low um there's very few obstacles, I guess you put it that way, to hearing the gospel, accepting the gospel, and coming to faith in Christ. And so that's what that's really what his motivation is. And we you know people would always warn us, you know, because we would you know we did away with all the tr- all the traditional things in in our you know contemporary megachurch that I was a pastor in. And we did these things because we didn't, you know, we didn't want the music to be a barrier for teenage children to come in and hear the message, the good news of the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, and we didn't want, you know, some stodgy, you know, pastor in a coat and tie up there speaking. So, you know, I wore a football jersey and looked like bloody Eminem while I was preaching. And I had a real charismatic and, you know, uh, type of speaking style, a lot, lot, a lot like Stanley's, you know, I was, I was a pretty decent mega church pastor. Um, and <laughs> probably could have got a long ways in that business had I stuck with it. But, but that was the idea. We re- I mean, we really did want to see people know the gospel. We, we really did want that, but this is an entirely wrong way to go about it. It's an entirely wrong way to go. It's a major bait and switch in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't think Stanley or anybody else means it to be that way. And I don't think that, um, the intention is there to basically dismantle the face faith, but all the all the old stodgy traditionalists warned us of this. One day you guys are going to abandon Holy Scripture altogether, in order to, because that's going to be a barrier to people coming to the gospel. See, so <laughs> um, you, you you lower eventually that you know the the practices you engage in uh, start to dictate your theology. And unfortunately, that's what's going on here. And I don't think Stanley realizes it. And there's there's just a there's such a big gaping hole. And we're going to point this. We pointed it out last week. We're going to point it out again this week. There's such a big gaping hole uh, of logic in in his arguments. I mean, you could drive a drive my 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 Kenmore through it with a you know full load of steel on it. There's just a huge hole in this whole notion of you know we don't we don't base our faith on Holy Scripture. We base it on the resurrection. We're going to talk about all that try to draw it out but i think really at the end of the day what what is what is driving all this is his dispensationalism i mean he's a dallas guy i was a dallas guy and so the the whole idea of the old testament while we would maybe point to it in some ways as type and shadow and these sorts of things it was a different dispensation it's it was a different way god dealt with his people god dealt with his people in different ways throughout history and each dispensation was completely different than the other one. That's why when he talks about the new covenant, this is a completely brand new way. I mean, you've, you've heard maybe heard of his sermon series. Uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago called brand new, um, you know, and they talked about the temple model and these sorts of things. Well, that's how dispensationalists kind of get their mind around how Holy scriptures put together is there. God dealt with Abraham in a certain way. You had the Abrahamic covenant. That was that, that dispensation, you have, we really had a you know a garden dispensation when Adam and Eve were in the garden. There was a dispensation there, and the Abrahamic dispensation, and and so on and so forth. I can't even remember all the dispensations. Now we had seven. I can't remember exactly what they are now. Maybe I could look that up one time. I've tried to forget it, to be honest with you. But it really it really does lead you to this place where uh, it's it's just a complete misunderstanding of Holy Scripture. You actually end up abandoning some of the most beautiful gospel laden parts of holy scripture when you can't put all this together in a coherent way and when you just say okay well we can't put it together in a coherent way so we're just going to dice it up and 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 forget about some of it uh in in many ways so that's that's what i really think uh stanley is suffering from at least i hope that's what he's suffering from and he doesn't have sort of some sort of nefarious postmodern agenda to to try to basically ease people in. I mean, that's what I was talking about last week. He's kind of trying to ease people into it. And I thought about that some more. And that may be true. That may be true. He may be trying to really just go that direction. He may be crafty enough to say, hey, you know, I'm going to do Rob Bell's church, and uh, but I'm going to show Rob Bell how he should have done his church. Um, and he's going to slowly over time kind of ease people into it. But I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't want to attribute those kind of motives to him. I, I just think 
his his past theological training along with the current culture um well subculture really in north american evangelicalism has has driven him to this place and it's you know it really is when you're in a mega church uh, there's a couple things you you have this mindset of you know decisions for christ at all costs decisions for christ at all costs now we would never say we would sacrifice doctrine for that um but but it looks like Stanley has found a way uh, to sacrifice doctrine in a way that he doesn't see as sacrificing doctrine <coughs> in order to <coughs> pardon me in order to reach people. Um, the other thing is in a mega church, you got to get people coming in there. I mean, this was this was the this was the ongoing crisis at the church I was at was we were we were always trying to get more people coming in than they were going out the door, so stuff would grow. And generally speaking, Andy Stanley has been very successful at that. And so he's got to continue to do things that, that make that happen. And this is, this is just his latest, well, not latest, but this has been an ongoing project of his to kind of, low, quote, lower these barriers uh, in order for people to, to come in. Uh, because he thinks once he can get people to come in, then they can slowly start to explain you know things, hopefully. I don't know. I, I don't know what his game plan is. All I know is this is... This is not good. This is not good at all because if it's not a nefarious move to try to slowly move North Point toward more of a mainline denomination type of church and kind of get everybody that's going there, the many thousands of people that show up there on a weekend, to go in that direction, if it's not this nefarious plan, uh, it's it's a game plan that, that is not going to deliver uh, the faith uh, of the apostles and the prophets. It's just not going to do it when you when you look at holy scripture as something the christians invented as uh something that's dispensable in the christian life uh no that holy scripture is one of is a main very foundational piece of sustaining faith you just can't jettison holy scripture and hope to keep your faith it's just not going to work you're going to end up with something else, or you're going to end up abandoning faith, abandoning the idea of faith altogether. Okay, so enough of me gilding the lily here. Uh, let's get to a couple things here. We're going to start with the end of the first official sermon in this series. We listened to the overview last week. Now, this is the first sermon. It's called Standalone. We're going to listen to the end of this, where Andy Stanley kind of puts together this mock debate between St. Peter uh, and atheist Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. It's pretty interesting. Let's get to it. That the first century believers, they weren't even called Christians yet. That would come later. They embrace what I want you to embrace and what our children must embrace and what our grandchildren must embrace. They embrace the first century version of faith. They embrace the standalone version. I don't need a book to prop up my faith. I, I don't need you to explain creation to me to prop up my faith. I, the whole Noah thing, it's fascinating. I don't know, but that's not what props up my faith. Christianity can stand on its own two nailed, scarred, resurrection feet. The foundation of your faith and mine is not a book. It is an event. That the Bible did not create Christianity. Christians eventually created the Bible. All right, so we covered that last week and talked about how, yeah, a number of things that I'm going to get into a little, in a little bit more detail this week, but let's let Stanley go on because I want him to get what he, get to what he's going to get to here. 
And this is where we must stand in our new generation, in our generation. This is where we must stand in the misinformation age. This is where we must stand. And it is not new. It is just perhaps new to you and new to us. But if we were to say, Peter, what's the foundation? Where where do you find your hope? Where do you find your courage? He wouldn't quote a verse from the Old Testament. He wouldn't quote a verse at all. He'd say, are you kidding? God raised his servant Jesus from the dead and he has promised salvation for the whole world. So I want to, I want to take one more pass at helping you understand just how important this is. I I would like for you to use your imagination. This is going to take a lot of imagination. I want to imagine a conversation between Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. I've read the book. Some of you have read it. Some of you have heard of it. Some of you have never heard of it. And Sam Harris, I've read several of his books. I listen to his podcast, you know. I like to imagine a conversation between Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Again, not bad guys, not evil guys, just different worldview, but they just think religion's the problem. I'd like to imagine a conversation between those two gentlemen and Peter. I mean, you know, how, how would that go? I mean, they, they would begin by delivering their normal blistering critique of all things Old Testament. They would highlight God's genocidal directives to the ancient Jews to go into a land and destroy everybody and everything in the land. Then they would rail persuasively, they're very persuasive, rail persuasively about the dangers of religion and they would cite all the atrocities carried out in the name of religion throughout the centuries and especially Christian atrocities. Okay, so real quick there, while Andy Stanley is standing on the stage of his church saying that Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins aren't bad guys, uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris are not going to return the favor to you, Andy. They're not. They're going to tell you that you're immoral and borderline psychopath for believing in the God that's described in Holy Scripture. They're not, they're not going to return that kindness to you. I get what he's trying to do here. Um, you know, to, to just, you know, show that uh, the, the thing of it is it's, it, Andy Stanley knows if he holds to Christian doctrine that that Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris are bad guys. They're leading people away from faith. This is bad. We, we disagree with this vehemently. I mean, the way, the way we treat each other in, in North American culture is cordially. We like to have civil discourse. This is very helpful. Um, in trying to convey truth to people. And I think it is helpful to have civil discourse, even when we do vehemently disagree with somebody and think that they are wrong and perhaps could be uh, up to nefarious things with the doctrine they themselves are putting forth. So to say that Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins aren't bad guys, I I have real I I struggle with 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 Richard Dawkins for sure. Richard Dawkins um, is, is if you've read God Delusion and you've watched anything of Richard Dawkins, he is not a nice man, especially when it comes to trying to discuss Christianity on uh, on, on a uh, with in, in good faith. And Sam Harris isn't much better, although he is better than Dawkins. He will at least debate uh, William Lane Craig. In, in some manner of good faith, although <laughs> even that's questionable. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure I would, af- you know, af- afford them that. I would talk to them. I would have love to have civil discourse with them. 
Uh, but but to label them somebody who they're they're good guys, you know, these guys just good guys. They just have a different worldview. It's a little deeper than that. It's a little deeper than that. And and again, they're not going to afford us that as Christians. The, the Dawkins, the the Hitchens, the, you know, the Harrises, they're not the new atheists. They're not going to afford Christianity that luxury. They're going to say Christianity is evil, and that that it's a, that its adherents are at best misguided, if not evil themselves. Okay, so yeah, there that is. In fact, here here's a few quotes maybe they they would use in their conversation or their debate with Peter, Richard Dawkins, one of his most famous. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. That's a great line. I mean, I don't believe it, but it's just kind of a great line, isn't it? Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And he goes on and on and on and on. It's quite fascinating. Sam Harris. It's time, he would say to all of us who are religious people of all religions everywhere, it's time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than the license religious people give one another to keep believing when reasons fail. Yeah. Richard Dawkins. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil. It's just plain weird. As you would expect, and here it is, as you would expect a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted and then improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other spanning nine centuries. I mean, of course the Bible's a mess, he says. I mean, look at the background. Sam Harris. The fact that my continuous and public rejection of Christianity does not worry me in the least should suggest to you just how inadequate I think your reasons for being a Christian are. So before we hear from Peter, what do you do with that? What does your 19-year-old daughter do with that? Your 21-year-old son do with that? I know what my 16-year-old daughter would do with that. She would defend Holy Scripture the way I've taught her to defend it. That's what she would do with it. And again, I have, I have the privilege of teaching the teenagers at my church, and I know what they would do with it. I've taught them to defend the re- not only the resurrection... Which Stanley is going to, thank goodness he's going to that, because you do need to be able to defend the resurrection, because that's your starting point for defending Holy Scripture. And so, I, you know, I, I've taught them these things. Now, would they be able to defend it against a Sam Harris or, or a Richard Dawkins? I don't know. Pro- maybe. I mean, we heard, you know, flipping Bar Ehrman and Sam Harris go at it, and they, you know, Bar Ehrman couldn't even give a a fair representation of what the what the historical facts surrounding the resurrection are that are agreed on by virtually all scholars. We've talked about this before. Again, go back and listen to my podcast, Defending Your Faith in Five Minutes. But my my daughter, my son, will be ready to defend this. God forbid they choose not to, but they will be equipped to defend this. They are equipped to defend this. All the way down to, to the detail. See? Because they know how to defend the resurrection, and from there they know how to defend the Holy Scripture. Now, incidentally, uh, I just uh, became aware of a book called Is God a Moral Monster? And if you haven't read that book, you need to read it. It's a must-read for your apologetic toolbox. Very good analysis of all these things the quote-unquote new atheists complain about. And that is what Stanley should be teaching people from his pulpit. If he really wanted his people to be able to deal with this. Because, again, what he's getting ready to say is, hey... Just forget all that. 
You don't need to defend the Old Testament. All you need to do is defend the resurrection, and that's what he's going to do here by channeling St. Peter for us. No wonder people are reaching for the door. No wonder people are walking away. Not because they've read these books, but because this kind of thinking permeates our culture thanks to the internet. It's all one click away. And my friends, you don't have to believe me. Think about it later. If the foundation of your faith is an absolutely true book, good luck with that against this kind of onslaught. And it- uh, Wow. Okay. So if, if, <laughs> if the foundation of your faith, faith is an absolutely true book. So again, what I, this is where I just really struggle with what, what is he saying? That the Bible is not true? Because later on he comes back and says, I, I believe the Bible, all the Bible is true. We just can't defend it. I don't. I don't know what he's. I don't know where he's going with this. But I mean, what? Here's what I think his frustration is. He listens to guys like Sam Harris, and I applaud him for that. You should listen to your opponents. You should know your opponents' arguments. But he listens to guys like that, and he can't come up with on his own. And I don't know how much he studies apologetics. I mean, he's done some some of his own apologetics books. So I don't really get this. But Stanley. Instead of saying, okay, well, let's take the charges one by one, study Holy Scripture, study ancient culture, study what was going on, and try to come up with a cogent argument. That's that's why, again, I recommended this book to you, Is God a Moral Monster? Um, the guy does a brilliant job of explaining ancient Near Eastern culture and what, what this was all about and how it kind of worked. And, and it makes complete sense. There are answers out there, folks. And th- this answer just, well, just forget about defending the Old Testament. You don't need to do that. All you have to do is defend the resurrection. Okay, well, that's where I would start. Yes, if I, you know, given the opportunity to talk to Sam Harris, and if he asked me, well, you know, give, you know, give me the reasons for your faith, I would begin with, with the resurrection. And I can almost guarantee, because I've never heard him have to defend against that. Now, he's done some debates with William Lane Craig, but he's never ha- talked about how to, I think, contend with the facts surrounding the resurrection. And I think I can, I am confident I would have Sam Harris twisted up in the facts of the resurrection so quick he would start to get angry with me over it. All right. So that's, I think that's important. But how do we defend the resurrection? That's the question. But I'll, let me let Stanley go on and we'll talk more about that in a bit. Maybe enough for you because you believe that and you've always believed that. And you're not going to read this stuff anyway. But good luck with your kids and your grandkids. But I have some great news. The foundation of our faith is not a cleverly cobbled together group of manuscripts. Right. So is he agreeing with Dawkins' assessment of Holy Scripture? I mean, that's what it sounds like. So, I mean, right. <laughs> Got good, got good, good news for you. We've got this cobbled together collection of manuscripts. It's not what our faith is based on anyway. It doesn't have anything foundational to do with our faith, right? So I guess he pretty much. I don't know. That's that's what's frustrating about this. Trying to be gracious to Stanley here, but it's very difficult. The foundation of our faith. Well, I, I think this is perhaps how Peter might respond. Fellas, he would say. Um, I I certainly am familiar with my own people's history, and I'm sure that the reason I've never questioned it is how I was raised. But gentlemen, none of that. No, St. Peter would not have said that. St. Peter would have said, 
The reason I've never questioned it is because I do not question God's word. Because whatever God's whatever God says is true. That's why I haven't questioned it. I've wondered about it. I haven't been able to make sense of some parts of it. Some parts are confusing to me. Yes, but at the end of the day, I know it's true because it's God's word. Not because of how I, I was raised. Now, he was St. Peter would have been ra- been raised to believe that the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is God's word. So maybe that's what Stanley meant by that. But but it's it's more complicated than that. Than Stanley's making it. St. Peter would have affirmed, unlike what Stanley is doing here, that Scripture is God's word. I, I, you, it would be very difficult for you to convince me that a Second Temple Jew of the first century would not have to have had a major problem with Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins shredding what to Peter then was the Bible. He would have had something to say about that. He would have had a problem with that. He wouldn't have just blown that question off. So his little channeling of Peter here isn't working out so well so far, in my opinion. In fact, nothing you've stated has anything to do with my decision to follow Jesus. Yes, it does. See, that's where he's wrong. Over and over and over again, St. Peter and St. Paul cite the Old Testament. Jesus as well. The citations in the New Testament from the Old showing that the prophecies in the Old Testament were predictive of Christ's resurrection doesn't have anything to do with it. Of course it does. That is just completely nonsensical. And again, either Stanley is completely ignorant on these matters or he's being disingenuous. It's hard for me to believe that he's ignorant. He went to Dallas Seminary probably about around the time I went. I can't imagine that he's much younger than me. He's probably got to be somewhat younger than me. I can't, I don't know. It doesn't matter. <coughs> Pardon me. The point being, he went to what was a good theological seminary at the time. You got a good biblical education there, minus the dispensationalism. So I can't imagine that he would not have known that he doesn't know that that Old Testament scripture would have been crucial to what St. Peter wrote in his epistles. Crucial to the testimony, the eyewitness testimony he gave St. Mark to compose his gospel. And it was crucial to just about everything Jesus said and argued against the Pharisees with. This is nonsense. The Old Testament has nothing to do with this? No. It has everything to do with it. Jesus said so himself. Luke 24 All of the law and the prophets and later on the chapter and the writings, the Psalms, testify of me. John 5, you search the scripture because in them you think you have life. But these are they that testify of me. The Old Testament has nothing to do with it? No. (laughs) No, sorry. Your channeling of St. Peter so far, Pastor Stanley, it's not working out. Sam, You reference the inadequacy of my reasoning. So let me explain my reasoning. I actually only have one. I only have one reason that is. When my teacher was arrested, I ran. And when asked if I knew him, I lied. And when the Romans crucified him, he 
died. And in that moment, I was like the two of you. I had no faith and I did not know what to believe. To use your word, I had no reason to believe because I had no idea what to believe. Now, when the women burst into the room early that morning to tell us the tomb was empty, I didn't assume a miracle. I'm no fool. Have you ever seen a crucifixion? No, well, of course you haven't. But no one survives crucifixion. I assumed like all of us did that somebody had simply taken the body or perhaps the women had gotten confused and they went to the wrong place. But I was curious, so I went to see for myself. And before I knew it, I'll admit it, I was running and I was hopeful. But guys, as John and I stared into that empty cave, we didn't know what to think. Later, Mary Magdalene found us and said she had seen the master alive, you know, but I wouldn't allow myself to believe it. You have to understand, I just spent three years of my life chasing a wannabe Messiah, a false prophet. I wasn't gonna spend another season chasing ghosts. Besides, I had a price on my head. If I wasn't careful, I would end up being a ghost myself. So that night, as was our habit, the boys and me, we found a safe house outside of town. The doors were locked. We were huddled together, whispering about everything that had happened in the day. And that's when he came. Nobody saw him walk in. And I swear to you, the doors were locked. But there he was, very much alive. Now, fellas, I really can't argue with anything you've said, but I would like to clarify one thing. My reason for believing isn't something I've heard or read or had read to me. I believe what I believe because of what I saw. I watched him die. I know exactly where he was buried. But God raised him and I saw him and I saw him more than once. That's the reason. That's the only reason for my hope. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the reason for your hope. All right, and so men like Hitchens and Harris would have just torn that apart. They would have just told Peter, old Peter, you're delusional, my friend. You were very attached to a guy that you thought was the Messiah. He died, and now you're seeing things. That's what they would have said. All right? That's what they would have said, because... They, they say the same thing about, you know, quote-unquote modern-day miracles. People propose that to them as well. And Harrison and, uh, you know, those guys, the new atheists, have no problem dismissing those claims. You know, Peter could have claimed he saw Jesus all day long. He would have said, well, uh, introduce me to him. You know, it, that, that argument wouldn't have held water. And, and Stanley makes it re- sound really compelling. Um, he does, might and and gives a you know a fairly touching picture of maybe what Saint Peter was thinking and going through, you know, as uh, as the news of of the risen Christ uh, spread by the women, and then he entered that upper room that time. <laughs> uh, it must have been indescribable. So uh, so that's there, but 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 Harris and Dawkins wouldn't have bought this argument even for a second even for a second but here's the big gaping hole in the argument that I 
told you I could drive my Kenmore truck through. Friends, you weren't St. Peter in the first century at the time of the resurrection. You didn't experience any of the things that St. Peter experienced. You didn't experience the event of the resurrection. I'm sorry, you did, you did not. Unless Pastor Stanley somehow has a time machine that he's going to teletransport you back in so you can experience the events of the resurrection so you can make this your argument as well. Sorry, guess what you're stuck with to defend the resurrection? I say stuck with in quotes. Uh, It's Holy Scripture. And it is reliable. And you can defend it. It's not easy. It's difficult. Requires concentration and lots of study. You have to know the Bible. You actually have to have read it. Maybe multiple times. And read books on it. It's not easy to defend. But there are answers out there for it. So... If, if Andy Stanley was, was setting up this scenario in front of Dawkins and Harris, and, and let's say I stepped, you know, I stepped into the body of Sam Harris at that point. As long as we're channeling people, might as well channel Sam Harris. What I would do is I would gently take Andy Stanley's copy of Holy Scripture from him and say, um, okay, defend the resurrection without using the Bible at all. No reference to the Bible. Defend the foundational event of your faith. He couldn't do it. Could not do it. So these two things aren't, they go together. I'm sorry. I wish it were so easy. We could just sweep it away. We could all just go experience the event of the resurrection. And we could come back with convincing proofs of it. And then we could convince guys like Sam Harris and, and Richard Dawkins that perhaps we're not crazy. And we could ensure that our children would keep their faith because they could just go see the risen Jesus for himself, for themselves. But they can't do that. The means by which God has uh, ordained that we learn these things is from Holy Scripture. Okay, I think we've hashed that out enough. Let's move on to a couple other things he does here and get to what we can. Here's the question for us today. What does any of that have to do with any of us, right? I mean, we're over all that, right? I mean, we're wide open. Everybody's welcome. God loves everybody. Jesus loves everybody. You know, those first century Jews, they just had to make a transition. We're good, right? We're not good. Here's why. One of the things that makes the current church and current Christians unnecessarily resistible is our propensity, our propensity to mix and to match covenants. God's covenant with Israel and God's covenant with the world. All right, so... So we went from one of the things that's a barrier to people coming to faith is the Bible. And we've got to kind of put that away and rely more on the resurrection. We already demonstrated how that worked. Don't want to go back over it. Now we've got this other barrier where we try to mix and match the covenants. The problem with this is, and I'll make this hopefully abundantly obviously going, I'll repeat this over and over again, I'm sure, as is my practice. The problem with this is the modern day Christian church does not have the same problems with with mix quote mixing up the covenant covenants that the first century church did. They were talking about the problems that the first century church was having was importing the civil and ceremonial laws of the Jewish the, Jewish theocracy into Christianity. That's the problems they are having. I have I know of very few 
Now, there are some churches who do try to import the old Jewish law into Christianity, <laughs> including Sabbath keeping, Saturday Sabbath keeping. They do this, okay? It's a very, very obscure amount of Christians that do that. Any church I've ever seen or been a part of does not have this problem. We don't have a problem with people preaching that we need to be circumcised to be saved. We don't have a problem with people saying we need to keep kashrut laws, that's kosher laws, to be saved. We don't have a problem with that. So what is he talking about? How is modern Christianity, how does modern Christianity have a tendency to mix up the old covenant with the new? That's what I want to know. I'm curious. How how's how's this happening? Because this other stuff, the ceremonial and civil law, we're not doing any of that. We're not mixing that up. I mean, if if anybody's circumcised, it's just because the doctors, when they were born, thought it was a healthy thing to do. It didn't have anything to do with religion. So where where is this happening exactly? Let's listen on. We blend. The churches do this all the time. Preachers do this all the time. And you're thinking if you're a Bible reading person, which I hope that you are, you have a tendency to do this all the time. We blend old covenant values and imperatives with the values and imperatives of the new covenant. We do it all the time. And I understand why you do. And I understand why I was raised doing the same thing because of the way you were given your first Bible when you were a child. Or maybe you went through confirmation, you got a Bible, you got gold leaf with your name on it, you, you got your first Bible. Or maybe you became a Christian as an adult and somebody gave you a Bible and they forgot to tell you, oh yeah, before you start reading that thing, you need to know. This giant book is divided into two covenants. The first covenant is with a nation. The second covenant is with people of all nations. You should probably spend most of your time here. This is not your covenant what we were told okay so there i would fundamentally disagree and this is stanley's dispensationalism coming out because as near as i can tell there was one covenant there's now there's a there's a development and a recapitulation of this covenant from genesis 3 on really and that covenant is uh to eve in the curses after the fall in the garden there was a promise from the woman will come the seed and you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise your heel speaking of the serpent I'm paraphrasing that's covenant that's a very primordial covenant but that's what theologians have called the, the proto-euangelion my teenagers know about this as well <laughs> I taught them about this I don't know a couple weeks ago so at any rate, that, that's really the beginnings of it. And then, then we see then we see really the full-fledged versions of this. Um, you know, we get kind of what theologians have called the Noadic covenant, although we wouldn't necessarily, you know, kind of name or flesh all these But particularly in the Abrahamic covenant, we see this. And I could go into all that, and I'm not going to go into all that, but but we see this, then we see it recapitulated in the Mosaic covenant, in the Davidic covenant. And all this is is leading up to recapitulate, just basically restating what God promised Eve in the garden is you will bear a son, a seed, your seed. This whole idea of the seed throughout the Old Testament is very important. Carries all the way through the Old Testament and points to Christ. The seed of Eve will crush the head of Satan and he will bruise the son's heel. Now the heel was a, it is, is a very 
a potent, powerful part of the body. When you talk about you know, grabbing somebody by the heel, you know that that sort of thing, or or or, um, uh, or healing somebody. Uh, you, know, you know what I mean? Uh, not hamstringing, you know, but but cutting their Achilles heel. That that sort of thing. The, the heel was was really your essential power center. Uh, that idea. Okay, so so the idea is there that Satan would uh, would have a hand in in Christ's death, and his death would crush the head of Satan. Okay, so that that's really where this whole thing begins, and we see this we we see this articulated more and more, um, and we see we see the understanding. Expand. I think. I think the Old Testament people understood this fully. I think Eve understood it fully. I think we can evidence that in Genesis two. I can make that argument. Not going to go there right now. But I think it was fully understood. But but more and more articulated as we see Scripture develop, and especially into the New Testament. And I think what happened. My this is my speculation. I think what happened in Second Second Temple Judaism is that vision got lost. See, and that's where we got this this whole idea of of the old covenant being. A covenant of works. It never was a covenant of works. The covenant with Abraham was not of works, and neither was the Mosaic covenant. How does that start off? Exodus twenty. I. The the Ten Commandments really, and my, I love what my pastor says about this. He thinks the first commandment actually is the one that talks about how I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's not the first commandment, but that's the first saying, right? It's the, you know, Jews refer these as the ten sayings. We uh, us uh, Christians have problem dividing up the the ten sayings and the ten sayings. You know, us and the Catholics divide them up one way, and the and the Calvinists and the rest of the Protestants Protestants divide them up another way. Um, my pastor says no. Here's the solution to this: the first saying was, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt." Therefore, because I saved you. Because you are my covenant people. Because by my grace I saved you out of slavery. Here's how you are to live. Okay. So, um, so at any rate, this whole idea of the, of the of the old covenant being something wholly different. It's a wholly different dispensation, right? And at least in Stanley's mind. Okay. Let's let's go on with a bit more of this. I get this. The man I've raised kids. We were given Bibles and said, it's God's word. Just don't put anything on top of it. This is God's word. Put it on the coffee table, but don't put your coffee in. No, no, don't put your coffee on that. You put everything else under it, okay? Let's be, be honest. Don't raise your hand. Many of you, many of you grew up revering it, but rarely reading it. It's terribly quiet every time I say that. And here's what's happened. Come on, in our culture, everybody revere the Bible. It's holy. Do you read it? No, it's holy. <laughs> I go to church and the preacher reads it to me. I tried reading it, reading it one time. I got so confused. You know what? I believe it. I'm sure it's all true. Wait, 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 wait. You're sure it's all true? Yes. Have you read it? No, wait, 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 wait. Wait, you believe it's all true? You've never read it? Yes. Who does that? Well, that's, that's a great point. And he should go on to say, if you say this thing is true, you ought to be reading it. Now, when I was an evangelical, we read our Bibles. We were on a year, if you were a good evangelical, you read the Bible at least once a year. Now that I'm a Lutheran, I read it a lot more than that. I <laughs> just do. Um, yeah, well, now that I'm a truck driver, I can listen to it on an audio Bible. Hey, I can get a lot of Bible reading in. 
but, but yeah, if you believe Holy Scripture is true, you should read it. You should read it, and you should understand it. You should read it, you should read books about it, so you can understand it more. Okay, And that's what Stanley should be contending. But he's just saying, ah, we don't read it anyway, so... Uh-huh. Children, it's holy. It's all true. I don't read it. I think it's all true, too. See, now that's interesting. Stanley says, I think it's all true, too. That's confusing. It's interesting and confusing because the, the whole sermon series here, he's been talking about how the Bible's flawed, created by Christians, can't really trust it. All we can trust is the resurrection, but he believes it's all true. Um, what basis is he making that? I mean, he's, you know, hey, guys, it's, you know, Andy, look, you, you, you said you believe it's all true. Why? Tell us how to defend it. But you know what I think? I think the Apostle Peter's lesson is a lesson for all of us, and the Apostle Paul's words that we're going to look at next week are words for all of us. It's two fabulous, fabulous covenants. It's actually three, but two fabulous, fabulous covenants. And when you mix and match, listen to me, when you mix and match, you get the worst of both. You'll never get the best of either. And our tendency, because of our devotional books, because of our song lyrics, is to shave off the rough edges of the old to make it fit nicely with the new. Here's what Peter would tell you. Here's what Paul's gonna tell us. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, would tell you. They don't play together nicely. They are two different covenants. One led to the other, but once you got the new one, you gotta let go of the old one. And eventually, the early church got this right. New covenant, new covenant values and imperatives stand in sharp contrast to the values and imperatives of the old covenant. They just do. The old covenant, we're talking about Exodus basically through Malachi was between God and Israel. It was a conditional covenant. I will if you will, I will if you will. But my friends. Okay, and that's wrong. That is not the covenant. The covenant was one of promise. Again, even understand Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Same words he uses to Abraham. It's a recapitulation of the Abrahamic covenant, at least the words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, right? If you remember Genesis 15, and again, I'm, I'm quoting from memory here. I'm hoping, I think I got that mostly right. I am the Lord your God who brought you out. I am the one who fulfilled my promise to you, who delivered you, who saved you. Therefore, this is how you, my saved people, will live. And that continues today both parts the promise and how you will live see this should be liberating to you and for those of you who walked away from the church because of something in the bible or something about the bible this is your invitation back it's not our covenant ours is better and mixing and matching diminishes our influence and culture when everything is just a click away Right, and again, I'm, I'm wondering where Stanley is pointing in the modern church where we are mixing and matching the covenant covenants uh, in such a, an egregious way as to include this, this ceremonial and civil laws from the Jewish theocracy. You just don't see that in the church. This, this is not a major problem in the church. So what is it exactly that we're mixing and matching here? Let me give you two quick examples and we'll go. Here's a question we've got to quit asking. 
and you're going to hate me for this, but we're not done. We've got another week. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about that? I mean, how many times have you asked that, heard that? I've been asked this, you know, a thousand times. What does the Bible say about that? This is a really bad question we have to quit asking. Here's why. Because the old covenant says stone her and the new covenant says forgive her. That's what the Bible says. Okay, now hold up. So if, again, this book I'm reading is God of Moral Monsters is excellent. Explains this perfectly. That really the only absolute capital crime where the death penalty was assured in ancient Israel was for intentional murder. That's the only law that the Jews had under the Jewish theocracy. Go check it out yourself. Go, go check this book out. I don't have time to lay out the whole argument here. But the only crime that demanded a capital punishment was intentional murder in the Jewish law. The rest of it had wiggle room where it was up to a judge whether or not if a woman committed adultery whether she should be stoned. Also the parents were highly involved in this. So if they had a daughter who committed adultery uh, or committed fornication before she was married the law was she was to be stoned. And who was to take the daughter to be stoned? The parents. Now you as a parent... (laughs) When, when you bring them before the judge, you're, what are you going to do? You're going to plead their case. You're going to say, yes, she did this, and there was these circumstances, and the judge is going to hear these things. And incidentally, there are very few accounts of people being stoned in, in the Old Testament. That the, These capital crimes, the, the punishments for them were very rarely carried out. And I can imagine they were broken all the time. The only accounts we have... Uh, of some of these capital capital crime uh, or punish or uh, laws, this legislation that had capital punishment associated with it, the only time we see it being executed is on very few occasions. And so, and 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 that's the times we have recorded for us. I'm sure, and it's an argument from silence. I'll grant you, but there were. I'm sure there were other times where these things were broken, where the judge said, "Okay, nah, you're just going to make restitution this time." That's how it worked. And and, the, and again, go read this book. The guy lays out the case beautifully. I wish I had time to lay it out here. But uh, but at any rate, the, that's not true. The Old Testament doesn't say stone her and the New Testament says forgive her. No. The Old Testament too says there is forgiveness available. It does. The Old Covenant says pray for your enemy's death. Oh, and by the way, the, he's referring to the woman caught in adultery in St. John's Gospel. By the way, this was, this was perfectly within the bounds of Jewish law. This this trial of this woman. It was carried out perfectly because who was the judge in that situation? Jesus was. And he was the one who made the just judgment. Those of you without sin cast the first stone. And that's it precisely scenarios that could have happened in, in Old Testament times within the bounds of uh, of the, the Levitical law. That was an option. People could have brought a woman caught in adultery that might have been entrapped or whatever else, and the judge very easily could have said, you who are out without sin, cast the first stone, case dismissed, sent her home. Very easily could have been done. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is playing out to the Jews who, again, I contend in Second Temple Judaism, have forgotten that about things and are trying to hold everybody to the letter of the law, thinking that's what will save them when that was never what was supposed to be the salvific uh, mechanism in Judaism. Faith, as we see in the Abrahamic covenant, is the mechanism for faith. And it's reinforced from Hebrews. And this is what Stanley should be preaching, and he's not. And the new covenant just says, pray for your enemies. That's what the Bible says. Let me tell you a better question. What does the new, co- what does the new co- covenant teach? What do, or let's be more specific. What does the New Testament teach? Or even better, what does Jesus teach? What does Jesus teach? You say, Andy, are you saying there, that the two covenants that the Bible is, is conflicts? Yes. Wow. Okay. See, that's a remarkable statement to make. The two covenants of the Bible conflict. No, they don't. They do not conflict. He is one of the rare people in all of American Christendom that would make such a bizarre statement. That's outrageous. The two covenants do not conflict. They're compatible with one another. One fulfills the other. One does not negate the other. The other one does not conflict. There are not contradictions. It's just not there. And that's the thing is, I'm worried that this is something more than just Stanley showing his ignorance. At any rate, it's exasperating. And I've got to go this week. I'm out of time. Listen to us on Pirate Christian Radio. Listen to us on KNN of the Cross. Give your $50 to the Kibos Hope Academy Well Project to help kids. Buy our Kenyan Christian art, handcrafted art at great prices. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. It brings salvation to those who believe. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Tell me I'm a sinner Christ died for me. I don't want to know about what you did last week on your summer vacation. What you saw, where you went. 